How's everyone this morning? It's good to see you guys. For those of you I may never met or don't know me, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors for our network of churches. I'm also the director of our ministers and training program. It's really good to be here with you guys this morning. If you're a guest here, or maybe you've been coming for a few times, what we do is we go through books of the Bible. And right now, as you can see, we are in the Gospel of John. So if you look at the Bible, it has 66 books. It's divided into two sections, the Old Testament, Genesis all the way through Malachi, 39 verses, uh, books there. And then the New Testament, 27 books. So it's about two-thirds of the way into the Bible is where we are. You start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so we're in the Gospel of John. And two weeks ago, Pastor Corey started our sermon series by giving an introduction, the first part of chapter one. Last week, he finished chapter one. And one of the things he talked about was who are the followers of Jesus? He focused in on this idea that John the Baptist, as well as Philip and Andrew and Peter and Nathaniel became followers of Christ. Why? Because they were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for someone that would lead them and they found Christ. And yes, they were incredibly diverse, but they were also very humble and they were willing to allow God to work in them and through them, which is what we need to be. People who are diverse, who are humble, who are wanting God to work in us. Those are the true followers of Christ. And so this week, we're gonna be jumping into chapter two. Again, that's what we do. We just keep going through until we finish it. Uh, you're gonna to get to enjoy John through this winter, through spring, and through summer, okay? So just get comfortable. You'll get to do pretty much all the seasons as we go through this book, but we're just gonna keep knocking it out. And what we're gonna do this morning is we're gonna think about the idea of what keeps us from Jesus, so that'll kind of be the idea that we're gonna be trying to answer. And as we answer it, I'm gonna go ahead and tell you what the three answers are, and then we'll kind of dive in to see what that means. The three answers are is dead religion, is the church, and I'll explain what I mean by that, and then unbelief. Those are three things that this passage tells us that can keep us from Jesus. And so as we dive in, that's the question hopefully we can answer and see where God takes us this morning. So if you came in this morning, you should have got a notes handout. It'll have everything I'm going to say. You also have the Experience Community app that you can download. If you download it, make sure you check that the Borough campus, the Murfreesboro campus, is your campus. Otherwise, you'll get other notes. They'll be better than mine, and we don't want that, okay? So we need you to stick on my notes. And then uh, also everything I say will be up here on the screen. So again, it's really good to see you guys. You heard the announcement about going to three services on March the 19th. We are grateful for what God is doing and blessing us, but as uh, Rachel said, we need more help to be able to do that. So again, I pray that you guys will be praying and asking God, what can we do to maybe help us facilitate that extra service so we can have more people coming to hear the gospel, okay? So we really appreciate that. But let's jump into John. So if you will, pray with me, and then we'll jump right on in. So Father, we are grateful for this morning. We are grateful that we have your word that speaks to us. Even today, it is living and active. And as we dive into the second chapter, we pray, Father, that you would help us to understand your word better. Holy Spirit, we ask you to help us. We pray, Jesus, that you would be exalted today. We are grateful for all the other churches that are meeting today. They are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bless them this morning. We pray for our other campuses where we see God moving already, and we pray for those who are teaching there. We also ask that you'll bless those churches in those areas. 
Thank you for the awesome nonprofits that we get to support like Portico. May you continue to increase their reach that they might help more and more people. But for this morning, Father, we ask that you would help us. May the words I speak be your words and may your spirit move in this place. Do it for your glory and for our good. We ask in the powerful and wonderful name of our Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so if you will, beginning there in verse one, and this is what John writes. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What is this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now, six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. So John is one of the gospels that tells us clearly why he has written the gospel. He tells us this in chapter 20, that he's written it, that you can see God through Christ do these signs so that you can know that Jesus is God the Son and that by knowing him, you can become a Christ follower as you believe in his name. And so what John does is he takes seven signs. In fact, the first half or so of the Gospel of John are seven signs that point to the fact that Jesus is God the Son in human flesh. And John wants us to believe in Jesus. So why would Jesus choose a wedding to be his first miracle? Well, there's, I think, a beautiful significance to this because this same John who writes this Gospel a few years later is gonna be an island of Patmos, and he's gonna have a revelation from God. We call it the book of Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible. And here's what John is gonna see. He's gonna see the concluding of human history. And how will human history conclude? It will end with the marriage feast of the Lamb when Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, welcomes his church to the wedding feast that we will enjoy for eternity. So it's kind of an interesting, beautiful picture, isn't it? That Jesus would start his ministry with a wedding, knowing that he is gonna end it with a wedding as well. And so as we think about this wedding, we see that Mary is there, Jesus' mother. We see Jesus and his disciples are invited, and we don't know exactly why they got to come to this wedding. Maybe it was a relative, maybe it was a close friend, but Mary seems to have some kind of role in the wedding. We don't know if she was working with, on the food side of it or whatever, but their problem happens in this wedding where the wedding runs out of wine. Now, 
understand they couldn't go to Kroger to the wine aisle and fill that back up. When you run out of food, when you run out of bread, when you run out of wine, you were in trouble. And in this culture, the Eastern culture, even today, is a shame culture. So that when something happens that brings shame onto your family, it sticks on you. And the groom in this culture, for some of you who have daughters, you wish this was still the same, it was the groom's responsibility to take care of the wedding. Yeah, I have two daughters and one son. We would have taken that deal, okay? Uh, But one of the things is that when the people came to the groom's house, it was his and his family's responsibility to make sure that the wedding people, the guests, were taken care of for the entirety of the wedding, which could go on for multiple days. And not only for multiple days, but there were multiple toasts that would happen over and over and over again. So when the wine ran out, that would be a terrible thing to happen to that family. Maybe the family was a little poor, maybe the family didn't have much means, but it was still going to be very shameful for them. And we see then Mary come to her son and say, hey, they've run out of wine, but we hear Jesus, what he says, and some people think it was really rude what he said. I mean, even when you read it, woman, he doesn't call her mom or mom, mama or anything, he just says woman. And then the Greek literally says this, what is that from me to you? In other words, why are you even asking this? But it's really not rude at all because what Jesus is doing as he starts his public ministry, he is saying to Mary, look, our relationship is different now because no longer am I your son and you my mom. I am the one that is on the way to the cross to die for the sins of the world, including yours, mom. I am now going to be the savior of your soul. And so as Mary hears this, we understand that she sees and believes Jesus in this. And even though it's not time for Jesus to demonstrate that he is the lamb of God on the cross, she still entrusts the situation to him and says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. So he wasn't, she wasn't offended She trusted in her son. And friends, isn't that what we should be doing? Whenever situations come in our lives, whenever things are struggling, shouldn't we entrust all our situations to Jesus as well, trusting that he will take care of us? So what about these stone jars, these six stone jars, 20 to 30 gallons? Well, again, in this culture, in this Jewish culture specifically, Ritual washings were an incredibly important part of their worship. So there was these people called the Pharisees, and then there were other religious leaders like the Sadducees and the scribes. And what they were huge on is a lot of legalistic rituals that they used to allow them to have power basically over the people. So what they would do is they would elevate rituals over the teachings of Scripture so that they could have basically a scorecard that would allow them to look better than everyone else. Because if I get to set the rules of what it looks like to be good and close to God, I can make it such that I look better than you do, and that makes me more powerful and makes me look better. And this is what they would do. And so what they would question Jesus and his disciples on often was that Jesus would not play the rules. He would not play the games with these people. He would take what God's word actually said and live by it, not by all the interpretations of God's law. 
Because most of the times these laws that they said Jesus was breaking wasn't the laws in God's word, it was the man-made rituals. And so one of the things we have to be careful about is that we don't start following rituals over a relationship with Jesus Christ. We gotta be careful that we don't take laws and heap them on people thinking that that's the way they get to heaven. We don't get to heaven through keeping rituals, we get to heaven through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is what we do. So these stone jars were meant to be used because they would wash their hands, they would wash their feet, they would wash the utensils, they would wash everything to keep them so-called pure. And so Jesus tells these servants, fill these stone tablet or stone jars with water all the way to the brim so it's overflowing. Now notice again, it's water and not wine. And then Jesus tells the servant, draw some out and take it to the head waiter who, the head waiter was basically like the MC of the event, the, the DJ, if you will. He was the one that would do all the toast. He would be the one doing and just carrying the celebration through, keeping it upbeat and all of that. And can you imagine the, the courage it took of the servant? Because they didn't know it was wine yet. And he took it and he brought it to the head waiter and something miraculous happened. Water turned in to wine in all six of those stone jars. Do you get this? Around 120 to 180 gallons of wine. Now, this is not a lesson on alcohol, okay? <laughs> but why should we be surprised that Jesus Christ would do over and above beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. That instead of bringing lifelong shame to a family, Jesus now turns this into a source of overflowing joy. Why would we be surprised that Jesus would do more than what was expected? Remember, he's gonna feed 5,000 and there's gonna be 12 baskets left over after just having a few fish and a few loaves. He's gonna feed 4,000 with, again, a few fish and a few loaves. There's gonna be seven baskets left over. Jesus is the one that gives us overflowing joy that never ends. And we can trust in him. And he takes these ritual jars and he turns them into overflowing joy. In fact, some people, again, believe that because this family may have been poor, because there's so many gallons there, they could then sell the wine so that the, it was basically a wedding gift to the young couple. Yeah, Jesus didn't bring anything but water and then wine. It'd be nice to have him at your party, wouldn't it, right? <laughs> but it's not just the quantity of the wine, it's the quality of it. So the head waiter takes what was given to him by the servant, takes a drink of it, and is stunned by the kindness, and notice, of the groom. He calls the groom over and says to the groom, listen, here's what happens. At most weddings, they take the good stuff first, and as people drink, again, not a lesson on alcohol, but as they drink, their taste buds get deadened by the alcohol content such that as the party goes on, as the celebrations and the toasts go on, the wine being brought out keeps getting of lesser quality and lesser quality and lesser quality. But the head waiter says, this is something that's never happened before. You have brought the best wine and saved it to last. The quality of the wine is unlike anything else. And that goes against all the customs of the day. But again, why would we be surprised? 
Jesus is the one that is quality from the beginning to the end. He starts with the wedding, he ends with the wedding. He starts with water, he turns it into the wine that's overflowing. That's what he does in our lives, isn't it? And so the Bible says that only a few people knew, the servants knew, a couple of others knew that Jesus had done this, but those who did know it believed in Jesus and trusted in him. And one of the things I think is a good takeaway for us is, you know, we never know when Jesus is gonna turn water to wine in our lives figuratively. We need to always be ready to see Jesus do something that will bring him glory. Are we always ready for that? So what does this simple wedding teach us about Jesus? Well, I've just jotted down just a few quick things as we think about the wedding at Cana. First of all, this sign teaches us that Jesus is the bridegroom pointing us to the great marriage feast of the Lamb, that he will one day welcome us and we will banquet with him and we will enjoy fellowship with him forever. It is a time for us to be looking forward to when we see our bridegroom, Jesus. He's also the head waiter who brings joy to the feast. He's the one that takes dead religion and he brings joy to it. And joy here is not just happiness, friends. Happiness is dependent upon circumstances. Joy is the idea that I have a rock solid assurance that Jesus Christ is sovereign over all things and that he is always working out even the tough things in my life for my good and for his glory. That's what joy is. And so even in the toughest times of your life, when you are struggling the most, you can still have joy because God's in control and he's working something out that will ultimately be for your good. That is what he brings. He's also the one that turns shame into celebration. Some of you know my story, some of you don't, but I stand here as a man that has faced shame before. I've faced shame and guilt. Some of you come into this place and you have faced shame and guilt. Maybe you're here today and you face shame and guilt even now. But here's what Jesus does. He takes that shame and the guilt and he turns it for our good and brings celebration out of it. In fact, King David in Psalm 51 writes this when he confessed his sin of adultery and murder. He writes a psalm and he says this, let the bones you have broken rejoice. Only Jesus can do that, friends. Only Jesus can take what would be from the world's perspective and from religious people's perspective, a reason to shun us and separate us. Only Jesus can turn it into celebration. That is the God that we serve. He also takes empty and joyless religion. He takes the rituals and he infuses it with life and he brings joy and excitement and relationship into those things. And lastly, this wine in the stone jars points to the wine that will ultimately point to the blood of Jesus Christ. Remember that when Jesus is coming to the last night when, before he is betrayed and will be crucified the next day, he gathers his disciples for a Passover meal. And as he takes the wine, remember he blesses it and he gives it to his disciples and he tells them, take and drink. This is the blood of my of the new covenant, which I am going to shed for you. This is what I am going to do for you. In fact, at the end of this service, like we do with every service, wherever you see a, a lamp on the table around where the poles are, there's some uh, disposable communion. We take juice and we drink it. And what do we do? We remember that there was a bloody cross where our Savior died so that we could be justified by him. 
but it also points to the great marriage feast that's coming. And one day we won't see a slain savior. We will see the risen Lord. And that is what we look forward to and anticipate with all that we have. A lot of cool stuff there, huh? Well, let's clean the temple now, all right? Verse 13, the Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And by the way, notice it says went up. So if you know the Capernaum and area where Jesus was, it's northern on the, on the map, and Jerusalem would be south. So how can you go up to Jerusalem? Well, again, the temple was on a mountaintop. So when you would actually go to the temple, you would ascend, you would go up to the temple. So that's why you can say we are going up to Jerusalem. Has nothing to do with the lesson. I just thought you might think that was cool. <laughs> Verse 14, in the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. And he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So we were created in the image of God so that we might love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength so that we can worship him in everything that we do. And throughout history, God has helped us to worship him. Remember, God is invisible. We don't make an idol and worship that. So how can we worship God? Well, when Moses led the people out of Egypt, God instructed him to build a tabernacle, which was a moving tent, and to build this box called the Ark of the Covenant where you could go and see the presence of God, not God, but the presence of God there. And then when David wanted to build a temple, God said, no, I'm not gonna let you, but your son Solomon will. And Solomon built a temple in Jerusalem where again, the nation of Israel could come, but not just the nation of Israel, all the nations were to come and worship the one true God. And of course, now we who are living in this age, what do we have? We have the Holy Spirit of God living within us and we have the word of God given to us. We also have the way to worship him. In fact, in chapter four, Jesus is gonna tell the woman at the well, there's coming a day and we're in that day where you will worship me in spirit and in truth. And so we get to do that now. But in that day, again, they would go to the temple to worship, especially on big feasts days. And the one of the biggest feasts, if not the biggest of all, was the Passover. And you may remember from the Passover, the picture of Moses comes and tells Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh doesn't. They bring these plagues, God does, against the people of Egypt. And the last plague was the death angel. And you remember what Moses said to the people of Israel, take a lamb, slay it, take the blood and put it on the doorpost of your home. And when this death angel sees the blood, he will pass over that home and not kill the firstborn in that. And so now the people, they go to Jerusalem to celebrate and remember God's good plans and purposes for them. And that's where Jesus goes. He wants to go and worship his father. And isn't it interesting that Jesus joyfully went to worship? Isn't it interesting that he wanted to go worship his father? What, shouldn't we do the same? 
I mean, shouldn't this have been the day that we woke up and said, this is the day that the Lord has made. We're gonna get to go to worship. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, let's go. I mean, why are you here this morning? Well, actually, I came to hear Corey. (laughs) Well, (laughs) so for those of you who brought a friend and said, oh, you gotta hear Corey, come next week, okay? (laughs) But why have you come? Have we come to worship God, to have an encounter? Yeah, we have great worship. Man, praise God for our worship team. Yeah, we, Corey brings it every week. Yes, we have great children's ministries that are happening, cool middle school ministries. We have all kinds of stuff, but space and parking. But we have most, lots of really, really good stuff. But if Jesus loved to worship his father, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we? So Jesus comes eager to worship his father, and what does he find? Well, you gotta understand that Jesus is the lamb of God who will be slain for sinners. But he's also the lion of Judah, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And when he sees things that takes the priority off of his father, it angers him. Yes, he's full of mercy and grace, but he is also the righteous judge who will one day come and judge all who do not follow him. And so when he gets to the temple, he comes to this outer court as he's going into the innermost part of the temple. So if you look at the temple, there was the outer court. It was called the court of the Gentiles. So anyone could be in that court, whether you were a Jew or a Gentile. And then the next court was the court of women. That would be for Jewish women could go. And then the inner court was where the Jewish men could go. So the only place a Gentile could go to worship God would be on that outer court, the court of the Gentiles. And there were many Gentiles who were what were called God-fearers who would gather to worship Yahweh. They would come and worship the God of Israel, believing he was the true God. But can you imagine going into this place and seeing all these animals and all of these uh, people trying to trade money? Because what would happen is this, and I gotta believe it started off with a good reason. When you were traveling from all around the known world to come to Jerusalem, you were supposed to bring a sacrificial animal. Well, to bring an animal long distance might be a hard thing to do. And so what they did was they would have a place where you could go and purchase an animal to take into the temple so it could be offered as a sacrifice. But they also, if you were a Jewish male, you had to pay a temple tax. But obviously there was only one coin that you could use, only one kind of thing that you could bring. And because people were coming from other parts of the world, they would bring different kinds of money. So what happened was this court of the Gentiles had become not a place of worship, but a place where people were buying and selling these sacrificial animals and doing currency exchange. So can you imagine the noise and the cacophony of sound that would be there with all the animals there and people yelling, hey, I got a cheap sheep. (laughs) Yeah, come over here. And the other one's going, no, those are bad sheep. I got the best ones. And they're yelling back and forth. And hey, I'll give you a better trade rate on your currency. And it's just a loud marketplace, not a place of worship. And again, the other thing they were doing is they were doing this not out of just the goodness of their heart. They were making a profit off of it as well, which did not please Jesus. So you wanna know what righteous anger looks like? Righteous anger is when what 
makes God angry makes you angry, okay? That's the difference. If it's angering God, then it should anger us. And so what does Jesus do as the Lion of Judah? He takes cords, he makes them into a whip, and he literally begins to clean house. But it's his father's house that he's cleaning out. And why is he so angry over this? Because a barrier had now been placed that kept people, especially the Gentiles who were the farthest away from God, a barrier had been created that kept people from coming to worship his father. And anything or anyone that keeps people away from the father angers Jesus. Anything, including us. We'll talk more about that at the end, but we've got to be careful that we never become a barrier to people worshiping Jesus. And so the disciples remember that it was quoted in the prophet that zeal for my father's house will consume me. And it should be no surprise that Jesus would be concerned about worshiping, that God the Son would care about the worship of God the Father. That shouldn't surprise us at all. And for some of us, it may even seem self-serving that Jesus would say, hey, worship me. But if you read Philippians 2, chapter, uh, verses 9 through 11, you'll find that this is what Paul writes, that God the Father has given his Son a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yes, zeal for worship consumes him. Why? Because that's what we were created to do, and we as the bride, we will worship him forever. So you might as well get in on it now. And again, how do we get in on it? Through the Spirit living within us and through the Word of God not just through rituals, not just through religion, but through Jesus himself. Last part, verse 18. So the Jews replied to Jesus, what sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore, the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man for he himself knew what was in man. So I can imagine that some of the religious leaders when they saw Jesus cleaning out the temple, that they had thought maybe in their best day, we, you know, we ought to get, do something about all this noise. We need to clean it out, but they would never have the courage to do it and Jesus did. And so they asked Jesus the question, who gave you the authority to do this? Where did this authority come from? And how could you call the temple my father's house? How could you say that? And so that Jesus did this wasn't as big of a deal as who gave him the authority to do so. And because Jesus wasn't ready yet again to reveal himself as the Christ, the Messiah, he tells them that you see this temple 
Well, if you tear down the temple, I will raise it up in three days. And he's talking about his own body. He's talking about his death and his resurrection, which is the authority that God has given and shown that shows who Jesus is. Friends, you know, a lot of people have died. There's only one who's risen again, and that's Jesus. That is the authority that makes him who he is. He is God the Son, risen from the dead forever. And that is what he points to. So even the religious leaders won't understand this for another two or three years. And so when Jesus speaks of his temple again, referring to his own body, we've got to understand that even the disciples didn't understand it. They're listening to Jesus going, wait, the temple took 46 years. You're gonna tear this down. You're gonna build it. And even Peter and Andrew and Nathaniel and, uh, and Philip, they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. But the cool thing is that after the resurrection, you can read about this in Luke 24, they did understand because the Spirit helped them. And friends, listen, in many ways, the Bible is easy to understand, isn't it? It really is. I mean, right now, our children are learning truths of God that sometimes amaze us. You know, truly out of the mouths of children come some amazing truths. It's not knowing the Bible, it's knowing it in such a way that we obey it and live it out in our lives. That's the hard part. But that's why we need the Spirit's help. We need the Spirit's help to open our eyes to see what's in it so that we can not only believe it, but then we can live it out. And so as Jesus is in Jerusalem, he does many other signs. This is what John just said, what we just read. Does a lot of other signs. And a crowd of people begin to believe in him because of the signs. But then John says something really, really interesting that Jesus knows the hearts of those who say they believe in him and he would not entrust himself to them. Well, why is that? Well, because as Jesus does miracles, people wanna get in on that, but they love the miracles more than they love the man. And can't that happen to us as well? We begin to love Jesus for what he can do for us, not for who he is. Because Jesus is Lord whether he does anything for you ever. He is still the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is still good whether he does something good for you or not because he died on the cross to give you eternal life. And I can promise you eternal life is gonna be even way better than this. And so what are you seeking after Jesus for? Do you want the miracles or do you want the man? And so I said there were three things that keep us from Jesus. Religion, church, and unbelief. So what do I mean by religion? Again, religion, it's a good thing unless we begin to elevate religion over Christ. Religion is a good thing unless we begin to use it to boast in our good abilities to keep the laws and the rituals. And that's oftentimes what we begin to do. We begin to misuse religion in such a way, in fact, you may have heard people say, oh, I hate religion, I love Jesus. Well, if you love Jesus, you're gonna love his religion, right? You're gonna do things the way he wants you to do them. That's not man-made, that's God-made. But here's one thing that religion cannot do. It can't remove your shame and your guilt. It can't. And listen, you can try to medicate it. You can try to do retail therapy. <laughs> You, you can try to do everything. You can be here every time the doors are open and think, hey, as long as I'm at church and doing all these things for Jesus, I'll be acceptable to him and it will cover up my shame and guilt, but it won't. 
We live in a shameless society now, don't we? Hey, do whatever's right in your own eyes and no one will ever tell you it's wrong. Well, what do you do with shame and guilt when you live in a shameless society? Well, just because society is shameless doesn't mean we will be without shame and guilt. In fact, the Bible says that every human being was created in the image of God and Romans tells us that the law of God is written on our hearts. That's why even little children know when they are disobeying you. They understand it, why? Because the law of God is written. Now listen, we can begin to live in such a way that our consciences can become calloused to shame and guilt, but it's still there nonetheless. And I can promise you, you can go through all the religious rituals you want and you're gonna still leave feeling empty if you're not giving your life to Jesus Christ because only he can take your shame and guilt. Religion cannot help us have joy in our lives in all things. It can't help us place the things in the right perspective. Religion only, again, can lead to legalism or it leads to lawlessness because we think we can't even live up to the standards expected of us. But there is only one standard we are to live up to, and that is Jesus Christ. And here's what Jesus has done. He has given us everything we need so that we can live pleasing to him. It's not a matter of what to do. It's whether we will do it or not. Religion can't help us be obedient. Jesus can only do that. And here's the biggest thing religion can't do. It can't change your heart. You can walk in this church. You can sing all the songs. You can listen to a lesson. You can give money to the church. You can take communion. You can walk out of here and not be changed at all because only God can change your heart. I mean, have you ever driven I-24? <laughs> you know, those white signs with black numbers are not suggestions. It said speed limit. It doesn't matter. It's NASCAR, right? Why can't that change your heart? Because laws only expose our sinfulness. It doesn't take care of our sinfulness. And people think if we get the right you know, lawmakers, if we get the right laws, our nation will be better. Our nation will never be better unless we are turning people to Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can change our hearts. Religion will never do that. More laws, more things will never do it. Only Jesus can bring dead li or life to dead religion. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus can take a group of people and bring us together with one focus on him, with one passion to make him known, with only one desire to live for him in everything we do. Only Jesus can do that. But what about the church? And again, I'm talking about the big C church, not this church. But a little bit about this church. Listen, we can never lose our focus on making followers of Jesus Christ. This is why we exist. We exist as a church. And I know Corey talks about this every vision service. You see it plastered on everything we do. We exist because it's what the Bible tells us to do, to go and make disciples. We make followers of Jesus Christ, and we do it in three ways, through authentic worship, authentic community, and authentic community service. That's everything we do. That is why at this church, you will not see, you know, a lot of like, you won't see any concerts where we bring in guest people you won't see giveaways of a 50-inch TV or a 70-inch TV. You won't see any of that. Why? Because our only focus is Jesus Christ and only he can be the one worthy to be followed. 
That's all we're gonna give you. That's what we're gonna do. And the reason we do it is because there's a lot of pressure from the culture telling us, look, if you wanna reach people, then this is what you need to do. You need to keep your services at 55 minutes. And you can only teach for 15 minutes because people's focus can only last that long. And you only need to do like two or three songs. It needs to be really upbeat and peppy and all this kind of stuff. And you need to have all kinds of like specials and things like that. Is it really interesting? Corey will tell you that people will come and visit our church from other churches saying, hey, what's the secret sauce? Because when people are growing, they want to imitate you, right? You know, so, so Jesus walked, uh, uh, Jesus, uh, <laughs> with Corey, <laughs> with walk, walk around the, uh, walk around, that's good, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, We'll walk people around the church and show them this. And so people go, oh, so it's, it's this factory look, right? No, no. Well, hey, what's your sermon series you're doing, John? John? Well, what was the sermon series before that, Esther? Wait, wait, y'all teach through books of the Bible? That's exactly what we do. Well, what draws people? The Spirit of God working through His Word. That's what we do. Culture also wants us to quit saying things about, you know, sin, and we, we want people just to feel good. And listen, the only one who can make you feel good is Jesus. I can't make you feel good because I can't change your heart either, which again, reminds us of this. We can never lose our commitment to obey all that Christ has commanded. And that's why we teach through books of the Bible so we don't skip over the hard stuff. But we will never be a church that closes our doors and says only certain people can come. Listen, our doors will always be open wide saying everyone is welcome to come. That is the kind of church we will be. Why? <laughs> well, look among us. I mean, this is who we are, right? We were people who were far from God and he brought us near, not because we were worthy of it, but because he is worthy. And so we need to be a church that says, listen, we're gonna preach the word of God. We're gonna sing songs that praise him. We're gonna do things with excellence, but that's all we're gonna do because that's what the Bible tells us to do. We're not gonna try to please the culture. We're gonna try to see the culture changed by the gospel. So whenever we come, we also need to go. Isn't it interesting that we don't just stay here? We are to be the church that scatters to where people are who need Jesus. So whether you go to work or to your school or to the supermarket or wherever you go, you take the light of Jesus with you as you go so that you can shine it so people can see Jesus in you and want some of what you got. Because it's free, right? Anyone can get in on this. And this is what we are asking people to do. And this is what we want us to do is to be that. So we can't be people who erect barriers to keep people from Christ. We just say, hey, y'all come. I like to, if you've ever been around me very much, I define evangelism as one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. We didn't make the bread. We didn't grow the wheat. We didn't take it to market. We didn't have money to buy the bread. We just know where the bread is. And we're just saying to other beggars, you want in on this? And this is what we gather to do. But the third thing that could keep us from Jesus is unbelief. Some of us question who Jesus is. And if you're here with us and you're an unbeliever and this Jesus stuff kind of freaks you out a little bit, first of all, thank you for being here. 
you honor us by being here. But guess what? You're with a lot of people who were one-time skeptics, people who also didn't believe in Jesus. There are a lot of former atheists and agnostics and other you know, stuff in this place. And so you may be asking, can God really become a man? Can he die on a cross, rise again, ascend into heaven, one day come back on a white horse to make all things new? Yeah, he can. But you may not be there yet, but that's okay. Keep asking questions. We just wanna keep saying what Jesus said to his disciples, just come and see. Just come and see. And see a man that can tell you everything about you and yet not cause you to feel shame and guilt, but will point you to the salvation that you can get. That's why at the end of every service, we always have a pastor on the side of the stage where you can come and ask questions and say, hey, I'm on this journey. Can you help me? But some of our unbelief looks like this. We only see Jesus as some kind of cosmic vending machine where we expect him to give us all the desires of our hearts, whether it's his will or not. And we're just like those people who love the miracles but didn't love the man. And so our unbelief looks like, hey, I want Jesus to be my lucky talisman. I want him to be my dream catcher in my car, so I'll put a cross there so that maybe he'll protect me. When Jesus wants to do way more than just give you stuff, he wants to give you himself. Because Jesus is the gift. That's who we're going to enjoy forever, is him. And that is unbelief that needs to be corrected. And then some of us know who Jesus is, but we question whether or not he can really save us. We question whether or not I can ever be good enough. Friends, can I just tell you right now, you will be never good enough to be good enough for God. He is perfect and holy. But we have a savior who loves us so much that he lived a righteous life for us. He died as our substitute to take the wrath we deserved. He rose again from the dead. And now if we will repent of our sins, turn from our sins and follow him, he will change us in such a way that he will give us his righteousness. And when we see his father one day, he will receive us to himself. That's the God we serve. And yeah, you may be full of shame and guilt. You may be thinking that no one will ever love me. No one will ever accept me. If they know what I've done, they wouldn't even let me in this church. Well, listen, you're amongst a a ton of ragamuffins and vagabonds who, again, we're just beggars and we know where Jesus is. Come and join us. Come and join us. Because there are many here who may be looking for joy and peace, contentment, acceptance, and purpose. And I can promise you this, you can find it in him. You can find it in Jesus. Everything you've been thirsting for, everything you've been hungering for, Jesus is the living water. You'll never thirst again. He's the bread of life. You'll never hunger again. I can promise you, based on the authority of his word, that if you will come to Jesus, you'll find what you're looking for. And you'll never have to search again. So there's a lot of things that we will never be at the experience We're not gonna be that glitzy, glamorous place. We're gonna still have carpet with stains on it. We're gonna be a church that is very simple in what we do. We're gonna be that kind of church. But here's one thing we will never, ever compromise on. We will always preach, teach, 
and offer you Jesus. And that will never stop. And for any of us in this place today, that's what we give you now. And we invite you to come to Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me? And again, maybe you're one of those people here today. Again, we're glad you're here that don't know the Lord or you have questions. On my right, on the side of the stage here is Muhammad, Pastor Muhammad, a former Muslim. And yet Jesus revealed himself to Muhammad and now he's a follower of Christ. He'd be a great man if you've got questions to come and talk to him. But if there are people talking to him, you're saying, is there anyone else I can talk to? Listen, there are men and women on both sides of the stage that you can pray with. You say, maybe you've come in with a ton of guilt on your life and you're like, I just, I just need some relief. Come and let someone pray with you, but I don't wanna tell them what I've done. Listen, you are at the best church you could possibly be in because there are people in this place who have done far worse than you. Come and get prayer. And then around this room again, where you see a lamp on the table and then in these inner poles and on the outer poles, there's baskets with disposable communion. You can find the, the juice and the bread that represents the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. And when we take communion, we get to do three things. One, we get to look back on what Jesus has done for us, his body broken and his blood shed. We also get to thank him now for saving us and for being our Lord and our Savior. But then we also get to look forward to that marriage feast of the Lamb, where one day we will gather, not with a piece of cracker and not with a small cup of juice, but with a banquet, worshiping with our bridegroom, Jesus, and celebrating eternal life. And so if you're a believer in here and you have asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, we invite you to take part in this communion. But what I want you to do, please, it's so easy just to grab it and run, but can you just take a moment, please, and thank Jesus not only for what he's done, not for what he's doing, but what he's going to do that day you see him face to face. And then take and eat and drink. And then we'll be dismissed in just a few minutes. Our Father, we are grateful for your love for us. We are grateful for your word. And we ask now that you would use this time that we might once again rejoice that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it's in his powerful and wonderful name we pray. It's in Jesus' name, amen. You can help yourselves. God bless.